This is the SAF Podcast. In this episode, Alice Bridgman, Francis Small, and myself, Sarah Roberts, interview Professor Megan Fallon, the Interpersonal Violence Prevention Coordinator at Clemson University. Good morning. Today we have Professor Megan Fallon with us who works with violence prevention at Clemson University. And I'm hoping this morning you will share a little bit about who you are, and then we'll get to dive a little deeper into Clemson's way of preventing, what we do in the middle of it, and how we go forward. Sounds great. So I'm the Interpersonal Violence Prevention Coordinator at Clemson, which was a new position when I started almost eight years ago. My role is to educate faculty, staff, and students about interpersonal violence, options and resources, and help people understand our policy and process. And so I got into this work because I was doing crisis center work at a local level and position opened up at Dartmouth College for their women's center that are for women and gender technically. And I applied and got it. And I loved higher ed because it gave me a little more of a break from the intensity at working at a local crisis response organization. There are different challenges for people who are in crisis who have children and limit very, very limited resources. And so higher ed was a way for me to see what, when resources can be available, how much more of a difference that can make for someone who's experienced trauma when those resources work together in a positive way and in a trauma-informed way. So higher ed additionally was a good change for me because of students. And that's probably first and foremost, honest, was what kept me in the work, students. Students have fresh ideas and new ways of thinking about old ideas, old things we used to do and fresh ways of doing them that is very inspiring. And to see what students are capable of when they think big and do big, when the work is hard, I lean into that. And so that's, uh, that's a little bit of what I do and how I came about doing it and stayed in it since 2003, whatever the math is on that. I've been doing this a while and, and I love it. I'm not going anywhere. Thank you so much for sharing. Kind of along the lines of what you were talking about, um, you were speaking to resources and how having resources available is really impactful for students. We kind of wondered what resources Clemson does have available for students and also for professors, because we recognize that this is not something that is only affecting the student population. Absolutely. I'll start with faculty and staff because it's not just professors. Staff aren't considered professors. So faculty and staff have resources through human resources. We have a program called EAP. The EAP program is essentially like a anonymous referral system. So it's not run by the university. It's outsourced. And what they do is they can, depending on what somebody's needs are, they can get someone hooked up with 10 free sessions for counseling, for example. If someone needs assistance with a divorce, they can do a referral for a divorce attorney and The attorneys that work with them often will give a 10% discount, which is huge in the overall cost of thinking about things like that. Recently divorced, I understand these things um, because I use that service. You know, so it's helpful in a number of ways. They also, I mean, it's not just things like that. And I'm, I'm not saying this because of people's correlation with alcohol and other drugs. I'm saying it's that EAP system is helpful 
in a number of ways. There's also referrals for immediate family members or themselves that may have alcohol and other drug addiction issues. I mean, they, they run a gambit of helpful resources at discounted prices or sometimes enough free sessions to assist in getting through that. So faculty and staff, that's really the focus of what HR can do. They can also do different accommodations in a work environment. Of course, we are obligated to make sure that office spaces are safe for individuals. So if somebody's experiencing domestic violence, that's another aspect where, you know, we would try to work with HR. Title IX area would try to work with HR to come up with whatever necessary safety measures and probably CUPD as well to make sure we're protecting our employees if they're in an abusive situation that can sometimes trickle into a workspace. And similarly for students, we of course work very closely with CUPD to ensure the health and safety of our students. And we are required to do that federally through the Violence Against Women Act and the Cleary Act and Title IX. So safety, we can sometimes also do escorts with the police department to make sure people are getting to and from places safely if that's a concern. Of course, there's security around buildings, cameras, and swipe in and swipe out capabilities, recording who's coming and going. Lighting is something a lot of people don't think about that we work with CUPD on and facilities when there's poor lighting around campus that increases risk for all sorts of criminal activities, not just sexual assault. So we once a year review lighting and where, what areas need better cameras and lighting. We can, for students who live on campus, work with their living situation and help change that if they experienced assault within their space or relationship violence or stalking within their space, we can move them to another space. Our housing folks are really great partners and work very fast. I have been able to move someone same day within a couple hours, actually. So that's, that's pretty impressive. When people live off campus, that's a little more complicated because you're working with different property managers and lease agreements. So, you know, we can try to work with them, but um, that's sometimes a challenge. I will say that. So there's a difference between on-campus and off-campus and support that way. Counseling and psychological services, really wonderful people there, and they have just revamped how they're doing their intake process because of feedback from students. And so another thing that I want to impress upon you all as students is when things don't go the way you think they should go for a friend of yours or for you, don't be afraid to find your voice and openly criticize systems and processes because nothing can get better if we don't talk about it. We can't fix problems that we don't know exist, right? If in fact there are problems, sometimes there's a unique experience that happens or someone feels like something happened a certain way, but the process has to be the way it has to be. But without knowing how it affects someone, we can't make adjustments. I will say that CAPS folks have done a really great job especially over the last year in making some adjustments that I think it will prove in the next year to be really great for our student survivors. So counseling and psychological services, when we know someone's experienced sexual violence or anything connected to interpersonal violence, if there's a wait list, we can work with CAPS to get someone in sometimes that same day, just to make sure that their immediate needs are addressed in a confidential way. CAPS is mostly our 
confidential resource on campus. Of course, Redfern is also protected. So the Women's Health Clinic is protected under HIPAA as well, but they do not do rape kits. So another thing that we can do is assist students in getting connected with the local crisis center, which would be Pickens County Advocacy Center if an assault happened within Pickens County, if they need to be connected to um, a hospital, uh, that's the direction I would take. Additionally, uh, we have Foothills Alliance, that's a local crisis center for Anderson and Oconee counties for sexual violence and safe harbor for interpersonal violence related to dating violence, relationship abuse, domestic violence, serves all the counties. So we have a lot of great resources. Another big thing that we do that's supportive for students is academic support. So if someone's experienced interpersonal violence, they're having a, a hard time, but they don't necessarily want to go through a process um, like an investigation or conduct or criminal process, we could still work with them on all of those things that I just mentioned. Plus, they need any assistance with working with their faculty for maybe some extensions. We, we do that, and that's probably one of our most frequently requested ways that we support students. And I do also want to encourage students who have experienced interpersonal violence that it's okay to need a minute to breathe and to catch up on your schoolwork. It's possible to have a faculty member that's not okay with it, but I have never had a faculty member not willing to work with me and a student to accommodate their needs that are reasonable needs. If the student's previously behind, that might create some problems for them because it's hard to catch up when you're already behind, but that's a big one. Um, and it's okay to ask for help rather than turning things in that aren't their best work or aren't the work that they wanna turn in for the sake of meeting a deadline. And then finally, of course, the conduct process we support students through, and that's the more longer aspect of all of these depending on what somebody wants to do. Thank you. So you briefly mentioned Title IX and that, and we've discussed Title IX in class and a little bit about Clemson's policies, how they've changed in regards to Title IX. Can you kind of give us a little bit about Title IX and those recent policy changes and maybe how they affect students and the process? So Title IX's been around. Uh, a lot of people don't associate it with uh, being around for a long time, but it's been around since 1972, which means it's older than me. That's wonderful. It's also been connected to sexual assault for many, many years. First case of sexual assault connecting to Title IX, I believe, came from Yale, and that was in the 70s as well. And so, you know, case law, and federal policy law, it all connects to that. In 2001, there was guidance from the Office of Civil Rights that was done with the proper Q&A process and all of that. And the language in that guidance basically informed a lot of what we're seeing over the last 10 years. It, it said things like K through 12 and colleges and universities should do all of these things. Now, where the plot thickens is in the, no, it was 2011, there was a Dear Colleague letter, which is essentially what OCR does, Office of Civil Rights does, when they're trying to elaborate or clarify on guidance that they've given. They sent out a Dear Colleague letter to Title IX folks 
in different schools, uh, and this is K-12 and colleges and universities, anything that gets assistance, federal government assistance, and essentially like student financial aid, for example. So if schools violate what OCR says, the federal government could pull that assistance. So student aid, that's a big deal. They could also fine different education systems for not meeting those obligations. So they put out this guidance in 2011 under the Obama administration saying, instead of using the language should, schools should do X, Y, and Z things as it relates to sexual violence, it changed that word should to must. And that changed everything. It wasn't just the guidance. There was all of this case law from previous cases in the 70s, 80s, and 90s that informed that should to must change. So there's case law to back this up as well. A lot of people, I think, criticize that 2011 Dear Colleague letter without understanding the context of the 2001 guidance along with the case law that informed that 2011 letter. Now, in addition to that, politics changing, administrations changing, other things change. So then we have last year, uh, the DeVos guidance, time period guidance was passed and it went through the proper Q&A procedure, but it couldn't override the 2001 guidance because that went through the proper procedure. So there were some things people were worried about changing with um, new administration and some things that just didn't change the way people maybe thought would. So some negative changes that came out of that, if, if you're someone who works with and supports survivors, would be the cross-examination component. Previously, cross-examination was not allowed, survivors in a college and university process. It is now allowed. Yeah, it's kind of messed up, but I digress. That's something that is now allowed in the process. There were criticisms about burden of proof. And so there were concerns, although this has not happened within Clemson's policy, there there were concerns about things shifting from a preponderance of the evidence standard, which just means more likely than not. So if you're talking about the scales of justice, it's the justice scales with a feather on one side. So it's not even 51%. It's like, just a small tilt. And that's that's a good standard to have in an educational conduct process. The worst that could happen is expulsion. And when someone's expelled, they can still go to another school. It's not that it ruins their life as sometimes that is portrayed. And in my time in higher ed, every single university I have worked at, um, and this is my fourth school that I have worked for in those 18 years, 15 years in higher ed, three of those years were not higher ed. I have never seen someone expelled for sexual assault. I have seen sexual assault cases that definitely had what I perceived as enough evidence to expel someone for sexual assault, but I have never seen that happen. The highest sanction I've ever seen is two years, two-year suspension. And I have seen those two-year suspensions come back to campus after those two years. And so, you know, I, I want to frame it that way because I want people to understand we aren't talking about ruining someone's life. Uh, yes, I'm sure it has a hard impact on accused students as well. That's just not my background as far as supporting accused folks. My, my background's in supporting survivors. 
you know, it's important Title IX wise for the process to be fair and balanced. And this is part of where the changes criticize and move depending on the political climate. People who believe that we need to protect more accused rights, and I'm not suggesting that, that those are not important as well, please don't hear it that way, might lean more towards wanting clear and convincing standards of evidence, which are really difficult to define. You can't say justice scales in a feather. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt. And our exposure to criminal processes or judicial processes, what we see on TV and what informs what people perceive as an adjudication process, most people go to that beyond a reasonable doubt standard. That's an important standard to have when there's jail time associated, when there's the possibility of being on a sex offender registry, right? Like these are things that can affect people really long-term and are not educationally based. They're, They're punitive based. Our process is educationally based. And so for the point of our process, sanctions like expulsion and suspension, or sometimes even less than that, are are reasonable. And the burden of proof for that should be preponderance standard, whether that's a student who got caught with, you know, pot or something on campus, right? Like, it's not the same. I'm not trivialized. I don't want to trivialize. I'm just using it as an example of it doesn't need or warrant uh, beyond a reasonable doubt standard. Somebody made a mistake and they need to learn from that mistake. And these sanctions are based on how do we create better people in this process? So our policies change based on federal guidance. I would encourage you all to look over the policy and educate yourself on the policy. I haven't seen it actually in action because I do not support the response side of the process. I support the education prevention training side of the process. In the past, I have done more of the response side for um, supporting survivors and it's changed. So I don't want to say what it looks like because I haven't seen it in, I haven't seen it play out and I don't want to speak inaccurately. I think there's a lot of players in the policy conversation between the Title IX coordinator, general counsel for the university and our student conduct office, OCES. And That's a lot of different areas and it makes it a little bit confusing for students. And I think that uh, we need to come up with a condensed way of explaining how that all plays out for students. I don't know that we've come up with that just yet because policy changes became policy during COVID. I'm not saying it is okay, but makes it challenging to see how a process plays out when nobody's on campus, to implement a process when people are not on campus, and then to educate on that and know what it's going to look like when people haven't been on campus. I am curious to see how this year plays out because additionally, there are anticipated changes to that guidance once again. It's no secret that Joe Biden, who is now our president, wrote the Violence Against Women Act and does not agree with the policies that Trump and DeVos put into place. And I'm not trying to make this political, but it is political. There's politics behind Title IX. And so I do anticipate changes once again, which also make it difficult on top of the we haven't been on campus and the policy change and we anticipate policy changes again. 
it makes it hard to educate on, I'll say, because that's my role in it. <laughs> and I can't educate on things that I don't have language to do so that's approved to do that. So I, what I would say is, look at the policy, find your specific policy and process questions, and find a way to get those questions answered. And I would also say that CUSG had done some of that last, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, because of their concerns about policy changes. And so maybe referencing back to some of their meeting minutes, I think CUSG has done a great job of advocating for students. Thank you, Professor Fallon. So I was getting, you know, not necessarily frustrated, but I can see how the process can be tiring and upsetting. And we don't know all of the intricacies quite yet because we haven't implemented we have implemented this new policy, but we haven't seen it on campus and work. I guess my big question is, is how is this also affecting non-students who may have been sexually assaulted by Clemson students? And additionally, it seems like law enforcement is rarely involved with any of these cases. So would you say that sometimes fails the student or do you really think that the educational standpoint or the way that the process does handle by expulsion or suspension really curbs this, because I guess it can just be interpersonal violence rather than full-on sexual assault. Do you really think that might curb the behavior? So two layers here. Criminal and conduct are two different processes. So anything connected to law is criminal. Conduct is anything connected to violating our student code of conduct, and they have two separate processes. Criminal is difficult for people to come forward on for a number of reasons, as we've discussed in class, but it's not as much, I don't know, there's layers here, right? It's not just that, it's, it's not about necessarily how police respond all the time, right? Like law enforcement, I'll be honest, it's different between different jurisdictions, right? RCUPD folks, I gotta say, like, um, have been wonderful to work with. Uh, hear students when they have frustrations, um, rework things. They're, they are they are really um, stellar to work with as far as uh, crisis response goes and these issues and being willing to listen, learn, and make adjustments. That's a luxury. We don't have that with every jurisdiction, right? That can change depending on, so let's say someone is out at I don't know, I'm just gonna randomly, like it uh, lives in Oconee County and it's a different jurisdiction, right? Uh, that responds, that's a whole other, and we have lots of counties and jurisdictions that our students live in. And so that's a big challenge. Um, uh, so criminally, it's difficult to prove. Um, a, lot of, a lot of these cases, if, an investigator hearing the case initially has doubts or reservations, and maybe they haven't had full uh, trauma-informed training on how to respond to these kinds of cases, they, they don't always move the case quickly or prioritize the case. The other thing is sometimes law enforcement's put in a difficult situation where they're trying to respect the wishes of the survivor who maybe isn't ready to move forward with anything. And so a, a large amount of cases that get reported criminally are anonymous kits 
when someone gets an anonymous kit done, the police don't get called. They just, uh, other than to pick up the kit and put it in storage, right, as a chain of evidence in case the person decides to move forward. They don't. They don't investigate those. <laughs> you know, they they have to wait. And so there are challenges within the criminal justice process that create that number, that low number of cases moving forward criminally. I also don't think that the criminal process is always the answer either. Um, a lot of people, as you're seeing in the book you're reading, go through the criminal justice process and still feel wronged. And so it's okay for survivors to have pause in moving forward with that process because it's not an easy process. And what, what do they get out of it? a lot of heartache. Some get justice. Different people experience different things. I don't know that our criminal justice system in a lot of ways has done what it's what, what we say it's been designed to do for a lot of different reasons. And so I'm not discouraging people to, to go forward that way. I'm just saying I think it's complicated. And I think it's very complicated as we talk about survivors and how they experience processes and systems, not just the criminal justice process. So similarly, a university process through their codes of conduct, whether that's Clemson or other colleges or universities, they're complicated. You know, universities are also responsible for protecting the health and safety of all students, not just one. And federally, they're mandated to do something through Title IX about situations, which sometimes takes the power and control away from a survivor, right? So uh, if somebody makes a report and another student reported the same accused person, we have to do something about it. If a weapon was used or what is seen as more egregious violence, I would say all assaults are egregious violence, but you know, some sort of physical component to the assault happened, we're required to do something about it. When there is a threat of violence to the rest of the campus community, we're required to do something about it. And because of that, in a crisis response setting, what we try to focus on when you support survivors of trauma is you focus on, you know, somebody's power and control has been taken away from them in the trauma. How do you help restore that sense of autonomy and power and control? And you do that by giving them the ability to make decisions about how they choose to heal, how they choose to, what resources they choose to engage and how they move forward in the process. That's part of why both criminal justice processes and conduct processes are challenging because if those processes are being fair and balanced, it means they have to take into consideration justice for the accused as well and the health and safety of the community at large as well, which sometimes means compromising the, the survivor as the priority. I, I think it's good for survivors to be guarded about themselves as a priority after experiencing trauma. That's a, that's a survival technique, right? Like if you're not sure what you're going to experience going in, and you don't have a guaranteed outcome, it's a risk to, to move forward. And when someone's already been burned, maybe not by a system, but by one person from their trauma, they should be guarded in how they experience others, uh, whether it's systemically or through their personal relationships too. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, it's just hard not to feel disheartened when we talk about this sort of thing, because it just seems 
so obvious that it's not working. I so wish we could just move into a place where it was, but especially after some of the, um, the readings and the films you've had us watch for the Me Too class, it just seems, it seems like we're so far away. But I think we were speaking, um, just the three of us last night, we were speaking to how um, much courage it takes to, to work in this field and to push forward despite the legislation that might make it really difficult. I just, I guess I just want to thank you for, um, for doing that for our students. And we understand that it probably seems challenging at times and is certainly challenging. Yeah. Thank you for what you're doing for Clemson students. Is there any advice that you would give us or any other students or younger people that might be interested in working in the line of work that you are for either gender equality or in sexual violence prevention? Because it definitely seems like prevention is more so the answer than response. Yeah, I think prevention would be the goal, but I also think we haven't mastered response. So I don't want to say don't focus on the response because I think when, when we aren't responding well, we can't do the prevention right either. Right? Like, because if we're not responding well, then how are we going to prevent it? It's like the cart before the horse kind of situation, right? So I would say first and foremost, you can't take care of anybody if you're not taking care of you. It's something that is hard for people who get into this line of work sometimes is we are caring people and we give and give and give and sometimes don't pay attention to our own needs. But you know, you can't take care of others if you're not taking care of yourself properly. You won't be able to give the best of you to someone because the best of you isn't there. So finding ways that ground you I need physical activity to ground myself. I, I need a run. I need to hike outside. Actually, somebody was telling me, I don't know how true this is. My dental hygienist yesterday while she was cleaning my teeth told me that in Japan, they call it tree therapy or something, tree, tree time, where like they like prescribe time among trees. <laughs> like be open to different ideas and concepts. I don't even know if that's a, a real thing, but I'm just saying, I, I understand it. When I am among greenery, I feel better, right? Some people feel better with yoga. You know, find the things that make you happy and be open to the things that you wouldn't think could ground you, right? Like, so I'm not into some of that stuff um, like yoga and meditation, but aromatherapy, I didn't believe in it myself. But, you know, I gotta be honest, when I diffuse oils, it's like a breath of fresh air. I don't know what it is. So understanding like how different sensory components for you make you feel grounded and exploring new ways when the ways you hear about don't always work. You know, self-care is not about getting a pedicure or manicure, although those things are great too. You don't always have to spend an arm and a leg to take care of yourself. Sometimes you just have to explore what's outside your door and get out and do some things. Sometimes you have to just be internal and write in a journal and reflect on journal prompts or whatever it is. I, I don't know. Just find your thing. So self-care is really first and foremost. And some, some of us learn that the hard way. I will say I didn't always prioritize that. The shift that I took into higher ed when I took it was intentional and timely and necessary because I was being burnt out at the local level because I just cared so much it was hard to put it away. Um, I would say that. I would say the system's always going to be broken. <laughs> that, that sounds terrible. But what's in your realm of control? 
it's really easy to get frustrated about institutionalized sexism, racism, and all of the things, right? Like ableism, heterosexism, homophobia, all of those things exist. Our system was created in a way that is inequitable. It is important to challenge that system when you are in a space and capable of challenging it. So what I mean is you need to be in a healthy space to do that. Sometimes that means you got to take a step away to be able to take three steps forward, right? It's still challenging. One of my big learning things is reminding myself to give myself grace when I need to take those steps back because I need to prioritize my kids or taking better care of myself because, you know, that's just what I got to do so that I can show up again. Take your step back when you need it and come back full force. Like, give back to the systems that gave to you, lift others up. I am fortunate to have had some really great mentors along the way. And one of my best mentors grew up globally and kind of opened my eyes to different ways of doing things, including challenging thought processes that productivity is the most important thing. You know, like that sounds so like anti-capitalism because it is. Be open to those things that change you at your core and, and make you think different at your core because those are the you know changes where growth happens. And I, I think uh, a lot of that has helped me stay in the field and mentoring you know the future generations of leaders in the field really fills my cup enough to keep me moving. So find the thing that can keep you motivated that isn't directly crisis response and crisis management, but helps crisis response and crisis management in the long term. Like teaching a class like this. I advocated to do that. Diane's cool in the women's leadership department. Diane Perpich, awesome, Dr. Perpich. And she encouraged it. So she's encouraging young aspiring educators like me to do that. And I'm encouraging young aspiring activists to find their voices and advocate for others, right? So like it's a system of giving instead of a system of productivity. Thank you. I really like that answer for a lot of reasons, but not that it made any sense, but I sort of expected you to give some kind of like step-by-step because I'm used to thinking of things in the business way, but just taking it back and saying, you know, take care of yourself, take care of other people, give back to the system's that's, that's good advice. Thank you. You've touched on a lot of moving, heavy, but good stuff. You know, there is hope. You, like you said, you're teaching young activists to take this charge. And, you know, I learn all of this information and I want to push it forward. I want to tell others. It makes me want to share and keep going when the political climate, because like you said, it, it, it really does come down sometimes, unfortunately, to politics and who's in office and whatever, even when it feels like the odds are stacked against you. So I really commend you for keeping going. What about the policies in place at Clemson, specifically the deal with non-English speaking students because not that there's probably that many, but reading the intersectionality piece last week and you're learning about these women crisis centers that turn away non-English speaking women because it doesn't necessarily fit what they're looking for in a potentially battered woman. How quickly can they get a translator? You know, when it's a little bit more difficult to find a translator and how does that 
equate, unfortunately, when I think of women of color and people who are in like minority communities, especially on a campus like Clemson's, which is predominantly white, I think of them definitely being further disadvantaged than a white woman who may be experienced some type of interpersonal violence, sexual assault. Dr. Crenshaw, Kimberly Crenshaw, the reading that you're referencing, that was written in the 90s. And a lot's changed since then. The Violence Against Women Act was passed a couple years after that paper was published, which gave funding to create systems for translations a little bit better, to, to make that process a little bit better. I will say it wasn't fully better in 2006 when I worked with a woman who did not speak English when I worked in a local crisis center. Her court date got pushed back at least five times because there wasn't a translator available. You know, there are translation services that that, uh, people can access by the phone. I know we were using that at a local crisis agency back, you know, 15 years ago when I was at one. I'm sure they have more smooth translation services than what I had been using back then. So things have changed. And, And it's good to take stock in what's changed because that change is improvement, right? I wouldn't say that it's perfect, right? Like until everybody experiences resources equitably, not necessarily equally, equitably, they're not done. We got work to do. There's a lot that needs to happen there to address some of the problems beyond language. Language is certainly a component. Universities and colleges have a much easier way of managing that. Smaller schools might have a more difficult time than larger schools because of their access Right, like we have lots of faculty and staff that speak many different languages that if need be, maybe we could like reach out. In that way, that's a luxury compared to local services. I will say also some of our faith-based communities are really good at finding resources like that, which is a nice shift in thinking about faith-based communities. So I don't know that language is the largest of the barriers. I think one large barrier that can sometimes be an elephant in the room is that because we have minoritized populations, they're a smaller community on campus. So when they experience trauma, whether that be interpersonal violence related or related to some sort of hate crime, they're very isolated. Not only are they a smaller population on campus and they experience similar things to people who have experienced interpersonal violence experience when they try to come forward about what's happened to them, you know, victim blaming. The system is set up in such a way where sometimes people turn the fault on the person who's reporting. Culturally, we do that. So there's that layer. And then if um, somebody's assaulted by someone within their community or experiences trauma by someone within their community, that's even further isolating. That's what I have seen is a larger problem when it's assault within a community and when it's someone who already has reservations coming forward because of how systems have treated them in the past because of their race or ethnicity or sexual orientation or gender identity or or even religion or ability. Intersectionality is a huge part of how these cases are handled, but I wanted to bring it back to Title IX just for a second and talk about like the training, like CU 1000 for students. I'm not really sure what faculty and staff have, but if you could talk a little bit about that, maybe how you would change that. I know you mentioned how protects the institution more, if you wanna elaborate on that, please. So web-based training programs are a way 
for us to ensure that everybody's received the information. And it's quality information, but how well are people retaining and paying attention to that information? As the educator, that's the part that I get concerned about. It's within my responsibilities to implement and show that we've done it. And that is important. It has a a place, but it can't be the only way of reaching people. This kind of work matters. And you're not going to get to the heart and soul of the work if you're not face-to-face with someone and helping them feel what the work is. And it goes back a little bit to the other question points you were bringing up about the work. Maya Angelou once said something to the effect of, you know, people will forget what you said and will forget what you did, but they will never forget the way you made them feel. And I try to keep that the core of what I do. How am I making someone feel today? Right? Like I can't fix all the problems. I can make them feel something about this work and about how I care for them. And I can't do that in an online system. The content's great, but it's only as great as people who are engaging with it. That's my challenge with it. Compliance-wise, we can show, yes, we have made sure that everybody has ticked off, that they read the policy and procedures, they've read the resources, and we've given them the information. So this is where federal guidance in Title IX is good because it's requiring that everybody educate, but in that required education, you miss the people wanting the education, right? Like people are going through the motions. And um, so there's benefits and drawbacks from that. Um, And I would say the drawback is automated programs that don't get people feeling what the, the problem is and how they can connect to it and create change. How does this move them? I will say that the Aspire program is a great step, right? Which is also part of CU 1000. So there's the component of here's the online foundational components, and then here's the in-person. I also think that that gets complicated. You can't fix all the things in a 60 to 90 minute session. Uh, There's a lot of big topics that need to be covered by Aspire, and that must be really challenging for Healthy Campus and the Aspire facilitators Um, to cover, you know, suicide, alcohol, and other drugs, and all of interpersonal violence and being a good bystander in an hour, hour and a half. It's very difficult to get students to engage with that topic in a room where they maybe know a few other people. When there's a sense of community within that room, you could do it. Places where I've seen those kinds of workshops very impactful are within Greek organizations. If they have If they give a 90-minute session with a trained facilitator among their sisterhood or teams or things like that, they might have deeper conversations and connect to the content differently because they already have an established sense of community where they're okay with asking deeper questions. It's a good starting point. So the thing is, like the online format isn't the fix, the Aspire program isn't the fix, but these things work together. So like those two things together is a good start. And then we have to figure out the next points. What do we do sophomore year, junior year, senior year? How do we continue that education? A lot of colleges and universities. So my, my soapbox would be, I think we need an interpersonal violence prevention and response center. We need the services centralized. We need response 
education and prevention all in the same space, which is what other peer institutions do. There's even actually like best practice standards related to this. And it would answer a lot of the compliance issues and create a more cohesive work environment on interpersonal violence, response, prevention, and education. So similar to what some of our students have been advocating for in the Women's March a couple of years ago, you know, in the Coalition for Survivors, these are things that our students are recognizing as needs. And we as a university have been trying to advocate for those things. Folks who work in this field at Clemson have been trying to work with the students and the powers that be to help create that process. But change does take time. So that can be overwhelming. Students graduate. And if students aren't voicing, continuing to voice their concerns, things go lower on the priority list. Um, So hopefully our students will continue to help Clemson move in best practice direction. Because having that centralized center where all these systems are working under the same roof and together and reporting in the same area really does make a difference. If you think about structurally where these things all fall, it's very fragmented. You know, CAPS reports to a different area than Title IX, but Healthy Campus reports to a different area than I do. That, that doesn't always make sense to me. All of these things are just not centralized and they're in different office spaces, which can be very confusing for students who have various needs, whether that be that their student group wants to engage with the topic and they don't know who to go to. So maybe they go to the response coordinator, but the response coordinator is for survivors. So now they're getting ping pong from one office to another office because they should have been able to find me, but they don't know where I am. We try, we do meet a lot. I I will say like the the groups that do all the things uh, work well together. It's just, it does make a difference to be in the same space. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Fallon. You gave us some really great responses and some um, really in-depth things to process moving forward. I really appreciate your dedication to your position here at Clemson and for enlightening us on some of the spaces we need, still need to fill in. I know that we're going to be speaking in the future about your responses as well as some of the readings we've been doing for your class. I just really look forward to giving really practical ways that Clemson students can be a part of this and the work that you're doing and better support each other as a community. So thank you for joining us. Anytime, y'all.